we had talked about Ellen White's forecast. I'll read it again from Testimonies, Volume 1, page 262. Then it was explained, this is after she described the angel intervening in the battle. Then it was explained that God had this nation in His own hand and would not suffer victories to be gained faster than He ordained and would permit no more losses to the northern men than in His wisdom He saw fit to punish them for their sins. I spoke of the significance of the statement, God has this nation in His own hand. And by the way, that's the thesis of my book. The title of my book, at least the proposed title, the press may change if they said they want to play with it a little bit. But what I'm proposing is, A Nation in God's Hands, The Civil War Visions of Ellen White. Because that right there is a central theme throughout my book. And I want to tell you, isn't that encouraging for today? If he had this nation in his hands then, he still has this nation in his hands. As we face this crazy election and the future, you know, with one of these, these two candidates, uh, something like that I find to be very encouraging. God still has this nation in his hands, and even in spite of Trump and Hillary, he is in control and will preserve this nation or punish it as is necessary. So let's focus on the last part. Let me analyze that. What she's saying here is that this victory would not come quickly and easily, though. God would not suffer victories to be gained faster than He ordained and would permit no more losses to the northern men than in His wisdom He saw fit. The words suffer and permit indicate, and suffer is the same thing as permit, just a different way of saying it. The words suffer and permit indicate the divine displeasure with the north because of its compromises with the slave-holding south as I spoke of earlier, summarized earlier. At the beginning of this particular vision, White set forth her view very clearly. God is punishing this nation for the high crime of slavery. Her indictment included both sides in the war. He will punish the South for the sin of slavery and the North for so long suffering its overreaching and overbearing influence. She said that earlier in this chapter where she described the angel. Yet he has the destiny of this nation in his hands. So the fact that he holds this nation in his hands means he will preserve it, but he will also punish it as well. And he would do so through the battles. Victory would come, but it would be a long, protracted victory. But momentum would take place only as the Union began to be more in harmony with God's ways and dispense with slavery. That happened through, I believe, God's key agent. One of his key agents, Abraham Lincoln. Accordingly, God would not let the North experience victory out of His blessing and pleasure, but out of His patience and tolerance. He would permit battle losses out of His wisdom to humble and punish the North. The victories would keep the South from crushing the North, and the losses would humble it to the point of repentance. And there are some low points where the North was on its knees, literally, uh, in the war. Thus, ultimate victory would come slowly and painfully. Now this statement should be coupled with another statement she made about a fast that God has chosen. She talked about she was condemning the national fast and she said God's fast is to end slavery. Lincoln had called for a national fast in September of of 1861 and Ellen White condemned that fast because he was asking the nation to pray and yet they were the war was not the the union war effort was not to end slavery. They wanted to preserve the union. They wanted to bring the South, southern states back into the Union and leave slavery alone. That's what Lincoln had promised in his first inaugural address. And she said, that's not God's order. God will hear the nation's prayers, 
when they begin to change the war effort and make it in slavery. And that was not happening at that time. But she promised that when that happens, God will hear their prayers and God will give them victory. So it was a matter of time and events in the war. And I have another lecture, and Lincoln features prominently in my book. But what you see about Abraham Lincoln is a president who evolved through the trials of war. And his whole perspective on how he viewed the black race and how he viewed slavery, he never liked slavery. But he felt he didn't have a constitutional right to end it. So he developed the brilliant strategy of the Emancipation Proclamation. More on that in a moment. Some say the Emancipation Proclamation ended slavery. No, it didn't. It was the beginning of a long process that would culminate in the 13th Amendment, which when it was ratified, that ended slavery. Anybody seen the movie Lincoln? Spielberg's movie Lincoln? Fine movie. Depicts the story of the 13th Amendment. Um, Well worth seeing. It's got a little bit of spin here and there, but basically it's historically accurate. And it's all about the passing of the 13th Amendment, but I'm jumping ahead. But this victory would evidently come, according to White, after the North experienced enough losses as God's wisdom saw fit and enough victories as He ordained them. This terminology then indicated divine control and intervention in the pattern of battle victories and losses in the war. So the angelic intervention she depicted in the Battle of First Manassas would evidently be a pattern throughout the war. But she never said anything more about it. So it appears that there was more divine intervention in battles. We can't pinpoint that because we, she had no more visions about that. But I will conjecture where I think that happened here in a moment. This is the distinguishing feature of White's contribution to the way the war played out. Rather than the battle patterns or victories or losses being totally dependent upon the decisions of generals and commanders or the strengths of, and weak, or weaknesses of the armies, God had the final word in the battles of the Civil War. These words then, first published approximately a month after the Battle of First Bull Run, indicate a seesaw pattern of Union victories and losses in the forthcoming war. That is, according to Ellen White's interpretation, there would be up periods in the battles and down periods for the Union throughout the war. The implication in this forecast was that once God's purposes of punishment ran their course and the sin of slavery was dealt with, the Union would experience enough victories to win the war. That was related to emancipation that I mentioned earlier when they changed the purpose of the war. Moreover, once emancipation became official and transformed the war into a crusade to end slavery, the patterns of battle would be decidedly in favor of the Union, and that's precisely what happened. Now, what I'm about to share with you, this is an interpretation. There are many interpretations by historians and enthusiasts of the Civil War. This is a specifically religious or theological interpretation by Ellen White, and she didn't talk about all the battles. She never said anything else about them. She gave this forecast. It's up to the interpreter to take that forecast and look at the battles. You can see the big pictures, but uh, never before has an analysis this in-depth been done, what what you will read in my forthcoming book, an analysis of the battles in relationship to this forecast by Ellen White. But there's a, a sub a subjective element that's unavoidable in this. Um, I've looked at the battles 
and I can see this pattern. It's a very consistent pattern. But I, when I say that now this clearly must have been God at work here, that of course is an interpretation. But it fits with precision, that forecast at the outset. So I want to make it clear, as I do in my book, that this is uh, an, a personal interpretation of the battles. She didn't get, give specifics. The interpreter must look at the statement and then look at the battles and make their own determination. And that's what I've done here. So let's look at the paddle, pattern of battles in 1861. Again, there are three chapters in my book on this, three big chapters. This is only an overview. So at the outset of the war, you had several skirmishes in the spring of, and summer, early summer of 61. But the first bull run where she saw the angel come down, that was the first major battle. It was a Union defeat, as we have said. So this was a downward period. Then Wilson's Creek later that fall, and the Battle of Ball's Bluff was also a major defeat. The first senator was killed in Ball's Bluff, a good friend of Lincoln. That was an unfortunate experience. Lincoln grieved over that. Then Lincoln fired the general at First Bull Run, McDowell, because he had failed, and he hired or, or put into place George B. McClellan a brilliant general at the time, to build up a massive Union army during the fall season. And McClellan did just that. This is George McClellan. George McClellan is a famous general of the Civil War, and I will tell you, in the long run, he's one of the worst, if not the worst, general in the Civil War. McClellan was a brilliant organizer. Proud guy, too, as you can see from the picture. He... He took those troops and he whipped them into tip-top shape. He created a massive army during the fall season, those months of the fall. But the problem is McClellan, he was a poor fighter. He always hesitated to send his troops into battle. And that's what drove Lincoln crazy, as I will show you in a moment. But Lincoln had built up a massive army, so by the end of the year, by January of 1862... When Ellen White had her, her next major vision on the Civil War, everybody in the North is waiting for McClellan to move, and he's not moving. And they're like, come on, come on. That was the feeling at the time. So we go to 1862. While McClellan was hesitating in the East, a young, a, a, a general not well known was waging war in the West, Western theater. His name was Ulysses L. Grant, who had become the key general. Ulysses, I said L. Ulysses S. Grant, who had become the key general toward the end of the war. But Grant took Forts Henry and Donaldson. This is up at the, the northwestern corner of our own state, Tennessee. That was a gateway into the Confederacy. You take those, you, you, those forts, and they were right on the, the river, and you had an open door into the Confederate heartland. And Grant took them both. And he would have gone further, but the Union High Command said, wait, wait, wait. They held him back. And Grant believes if he had been able to penetrate the heartland at that point, he could have ended the war sooner and taken all the West for the Union. But because they hesitated, it took them a year later to finally secure the Western theater. But still, there were victories here. The Battle of Pea Ridge in Arkansas was a victory. Shiloh, Shiloh, that's also in our own state, Tennessee, western part.
part of the state. That was the first major bloody battle of the Civil War. They thought Bull Run was bad. Shiloh was the first battle with huge troops involved. The casualties were massive. When this battle happened, they realized it's going to be a long, real long and bloody war. Grant, the general in charge of the Union, described after the battle, it took place in several days, over a field where the Confederates had been charging. He said the field was so thick with bodies, dead bodies, you could walk across the field and never touch the ground because there were so many bodies. Now I have another presentation. I thought GYC, I better not share that one. It's, it's a rated R presentation because I describe the testimonies that I, I compare with Ellen White's description of the death and carnage in her Parkville vision that I talked about earlier. I, I compare that with eyewitness testimonies after various battles. Soldiers walk the battlefield and they, they witness all the death and carnage and it's very graphic what they say, but it vindicates what Ellen White saw in vision. But I could give you testimonies that will make your hair stand up about Shiloh. Uh, it's, it, 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 they had never seen anything like it, and yet Shiloh was just the beginning of huge battles like that. It would get worse, as I will tell you. Shiloh was the beginning of large uh, warfare and, and massive carnage. But it was nevertheless, it was a marginal victory for the North. Then they had a, a lot of naval successes, taking the Mississippi, on down to Mississippi. Vicksburg was the key. Vicksburg, Mississippi. I used to pastor in Jackson, Mississippi, close to Vicksburg. And uh, that was the key. Once you took Vicksburg, if, if the Union owned the Mississippi River, they, would, they could cut the Confederacy in half because in those days, the main source of travel and, and supply and the troops for the Confederacy was through the Mississippi River. And you take the Mississippi, you cut the Confederacy in two. And they were successful in taking Memphis and, and uh, all the upper uh, cities along the Mississippi River, but they could, in the summer of 62, they could not take Vicksburg. That would not happen until a year later. But nevertheless, naval successes until, see, this, so you had the, the down pattern in 61, then you have this up pattern in the first half of 62 until the Seven Days Battles, a series of several major battles where McClellan finally moved his army, 100,000 plus soldiers, and was endeavoring to take Richmond. But that's when Robert E. Lee rose to the scene as one of the great generals in military history, uh, battlefield strategy, and he took and he fought and maneuvered uh, McClellan back. And it was a loss, a major loss, because McClellan did not take Richmond. And that plunged the entire North into despair. It was a very low moment this summer. Lincoln thought, I've got to do something here. And he had been thinking of this draft of the Emancipation Proclamation. He read it to the cabinet, and they were shocked. Are you kidding? In slavery in the South? Come on! Uh, Make the war an effort to end slavery? Make that a part of the effort? And, and, but Lincoln, he said, I don't want your opinion. This is what I'm going to do. And Secretary Seward said, well, wait, don't do it now. Release it after we have a battle win. We need a win on the battlefield. So Lincoln tucked it in his drawer, waiting for a victory. That victory was long coming. Weeks passed, 
and the Battle of Second Manassas. That's at the same battlefield where the first Battle of Bull Run or Manassas was fought that we talked about earlier. This took place a year later. Guess what? A similar thing happened. The Union troops were driven off the field and they fled back to Washington just like a year ago. Lincoln couldn't believe it. He said, I've heard of being knocked back in the middle of last week, but I've never heard of being knocked back in the middle of last year. And that, that's, that's what had happened. So you had this up period and then this down period of defeat in the summer. Things looked bad that summer. In fact, it looked as if the Confederacy could win. All these Union victories here seemed to mean nothing in light of what happened. And yet Lincoln had this draft of the Emancipation Proclamation tucked away in his drawer. But then, at the right moment, the Battle of Antietam on September 17, 1862 was a marginal Union victory. Let me give you the story of Antietam, a made the first major turning point in the Civil War. One of the most significant battles in the entire war was the Battle of Antietam. September 1862 was a major turning point in the American Civil War. After the Union summer losses at the Seven Days and Second Manassas battles, it was a real possibility that the Confederate States of America might win their independence. Several factors, for example, were evident by the end of August. The British government was preparing to give the Confederacy diplomatic recognition. And by the way, Ellen White makes a major statement, a couple of paragraphs. She describes Britain and its involvement in the war. And she describes foreign diplomatic relations. I have a whole chapter dealing with that. She makes a statement where it appears as if she's predicting that, that, union, that, that, the, uh, that England would declare war on the United States. She's not saying that. That never happened. I have a whole chapter where I describe that, discuss that issue in detail. But that was, that was a key fear of the North and of the Lincoln administration is that the the British government and other European governments would recognize the Confederacy as a separate nation. From Lincoln, they were, it was an insurrection. They were rebellion within his union. They were not a separate nation. But if European powers made them a separate nation, recognized them as a separate nation, that means they could get funding and they could get reinforcement from other countries and possibly win against the North. So this was a bad thing. And that, because they had the... Union had lost those summer battles. Well, the England said, well, maybe we'll just support the Confederacy. So it did not look good. Confederate armies launched a major offensive into Maryland, Kentucky, and western Tennessee, and the northern armies and citizens were demoralized. Lincoln had shelled his Emancipation Proclamation to wait for a victory that might never come. So this is, of course, before the Battle of Antietam, after that loss at Manass- second loss at Manassas. Now, McClellan because of the loss in the seven-day battles, he'd been uh, relieved of his duty of the main general, the general in charge. But then Lincoln put him back in charge because he knew he, he needed him because he knew that the soldiers supported McClellan. McClellan's soldiers loved him. You know why? Because he wouldn't send them in the battle to die. <laughs> but a good general knows, like Grant did, you've got to sacrifice lives to win a war. In fact, they called Grant, as I'll say later on, Grant the Butcher, because so many men died under him. But that's how he won, by feeding these men into the army until he eventually defeated the enemy. So an interesting event took place here. Um, This is a map. I won't go into all the detail. 
But McClellan was pursuing Lee uh, after that summer. And Lee had been to Frederick, Maryland, and then he had left. And then McClellan marches into Frederick, and an extraordinary event took place. One of those famous Civil War stories. Lee had, dev- had planned his strategy to defeat McClellan, and it was called Special Order 191. He had three copies of it. He wrote out his orders and sent it to his generals. But one copy somehow had been left at a campsite. And it was rolled. Several cigars were rolled up in it. Whoever, we don't know to this day, whoever left it there. But boy, if he would have been caught, he would have been in trouble. But what happened, One of a, a captain went to this campsite where the Confederates had been camping and he he noticed some paper and he saw, ah, cigars. And he told his aide, quickly, get some matches, let's light these cigars. And he opened up the paper and put it aside and was excited about the cigars, but then he noticed that paper. That is interesting. He began to read it. He saw famous names of Confederate generals who all every Union soldier knew about. And he saw the, it was a complete battle plan Sign Robert E. Lee. This was a copy of Robert E. Lee's orders. Robert E. Lee's orders. His strategy. They actually, a Union soldier actually had in hands the whole plan of the enemy. And so they sent it up through the lines to McClellan. Now Bruce Catton, a famous Civil War historian, explained it this way. Once McClellan got this, he, sh- he raised his hands and said, Now I know how to defeat the enemy. Here's how one historian described it. The fog of war, which always limits the vision of an army commander, suddenly dissolved and everything became clear. McClellan knew as much about Lee's plans as if he had personally attended Lee's last staff conference. The game was being handed to him on a silver platter. McClellan had become the beneficiary of the greatest security leak in American military history. According to Catton, Lee's army of invasion had split into pieces like an exploding shell, and the Army of the Potomac, Massed in and near Frederick, Maryland, was ideally situated to exploit this situation. No Civil War general was ever given so fair a chance to destroy the opposing army one piece at a time. McClellan had Lee's plans. If he would send his troops off immediately, he knew where to go, where to strike, and how to defeat the enemy. And Lee would have been taken by surprise. But McClellan the great hesitator. He waited. He thought he's got to plan things out. He waited for 24 hours. By the time he finally struck, Lee knew what was going on and planned accordingly. Now, if if it had been reversed and Lee had received McClellan's plans, let me tell you something. Lee and other good generals in the Civil War, they would have launched their troops within the hour of finding those lost orders. But no McClellan, he waited. It just, it, it pains me when I read that. I just can't imagine that. My personality, I'm a person of action. I, 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 I would have acted on that very quickly, but I read about McClellan, it's just painful that this guy would just dilly-dally around. Yet, yet, that was a part of God's working. Because if McClellan had acted and defeated the principal Confederate army, 
The war would have come to an end soon after that, with slavery left untouched in the South. It was not time yet. So in spite of McClellan's weaknesses, God used him. God used McClellan's weaknesses. Special Order 191 could have been the biggest turning point in the Civil War, but it was not. It's just one of these famous Civil War stories, and all, you, all Civil War enthusiasts, we talk about McClellan. You know, old George, if he just would have done things differently. You, you see the pictures of Lincoln before the war and after the war. He was a lot grayer and more wrinkles. McClellan caused some of those wrinkles. So, eventually, it ended up, this is what caused the bloodiest one-day battle of the Civil War. McClellan slowly pursued Lee and he was fought back and Lee was maneuvered behind the, uh, the river here and that led to the battle of Antietam. Without going into much detail, let me just introduce you to the battle of Antietam, its significance. Antietam was the bloodiest day of battle in American history fought on September 17, 1862. On that day, 6,500 to 7,000 men were killed in action. According to one estimate, approximately one man died every five or six seconds of the battle. Now, in another lecture, presentation, as well as in the book, I describe the carnage in the battlefield. I'll spare you of that this afternoon. But, on Ante but at Antietam, it was bloodier than you could ever imagine. It was horrific. The number of casualties in one day at the Battle of Antietam was nearly four times the number of casualties on D-Day, June 6, 1944. Twice as many people were killed and mortally wounded than were killed by the terrorist attacks in the United States on September 11, 2001. Indeed, the number of battle deaths in one day at Antietam exceeded the total battle deaths in all the other wars the United States fought in the 19th century. The War of 1812, the Mexican-American War, the Spanish-American War, and the Indian Wars. And I'm citing the famous Civil War historian James McPherson in this statement here on the significance of Antietam. What's interesting, after that battle ended, Lee retreated. It was a marginal win. Of course, McClellan claimed it was a great victory. But Lee's army was retreating. It was vulnerable. If McClellan had pursued Lee, he could have taken him in the next couple of days. But what, what do you think McClellan did? He sat tight. He set up a big camp. Lincoln was repeatedly corresponding with him. You need to move. Move. Go get Lee, basically. McClellan didn't move for over a month. And Lee was backed up by the river. But he eventually crossed the river. McClellan dilly-dallied around. Finally, Lincoln visited McClellan. Here's this picture, where this picture was taken after the Battle of Antietam. Now, in the Civil War era, they would... The photography was new. In fact, some of the first pictures of any war were taken during the Battle of Antietam by a famous photographer of the Civil War. And this picture was taken. They're all posing. McClellan, that's McClellan. There's Lincoln, of course. And they all are opposing. Lincoln was there for one purpose, to encourage McClellan to get the army moving, to go get Lee. And here's a famous picture taken between the two in the tent. And Lincoln probably during this conversation when this picture was taken. He told McClellan, if you do not move, 
your army and go take Lee, you'll be a ruined man. Because in his head, Lincoln was going to fire him once and for all, and he did. But at this point, he's encouraging him to get your army to move it. Now, Lincoln was camping with them a couple of days, and at one point he was so frustrated, he, one of the aides writes this later on, he was walking up on the ridge with one of his aides, pacing back and forth, looking over the army, the tent, this is a picture of McClellan's army, and he was frustrated. He says to his aide, what do you see out there? Pointing to the vast army and the camp. What do you see out there? He said, well, Mr. President, that's, that's General McClellan's army. That, that, that's the army. McClellan said, no, that's not the army. That's General McClellan's bodyguard. Lincoln was so frustrated. He just said, that's not his army, that's his own bodyguard. In other words, he thought McClellan only thought about protecting himself. He was sarcastic. He was just so frustrated. The consequences of Antietam. It was a marginal win, but it was significant. The Union needed it. It was a, it was a, a win that came at the precise moment they needed. True, McClellan didn't follow up on it. In a sense, it extended the war. But it also was a turning point. Here's its significance. England backed off from intervening in the war and giving the Confederacy diplomatic recognition for the, for the time being. The battle impacted the November elections. You had the Republicans maintain their major seats in uh, the House and the Senate. That was important for continuing the war effort in the North. The most important consequence of Antietam was that Lincoln now had the victory he needed to issue his Emancipation Proclamation. And so he released the preliminary draft of the Emancipation Proclamation where he gave the Confederacy a hundred days to free the slaves. Now, of course, he knew they weren't going to do it. This did not relate to the border states that were still in the Union that had slaves. He couldn't free those slaves. But in, in, doing, in saying this about the Confederate states, it was more a war measure. It meant that now the war... Once it was enacted, it would be a war to not only save the Union, but to end slavery. But at this point, the preliminary draft, it was, he gave them a hundred days to free the slaves, and it wasn't until January 1, 1863, that he signed the official draft of the Emancipation Proclamation. And once that was done, the whole war effort slowly, gradually began to change. He didn't, was it, the Emancipation Proclamation didn't free any slaves immediately. But it was the beginning of a lengthy process that would result or culminate in the 13th Amendment. There's a lot of history here, I know, but it's relevant to Ellen White's visions. And that's really what I'm doing here and in my book. I'm giving the historical context for these visions. I think it's so important that that those of us who read Ellen White and appreciate Ellen White understand the historical significance of these statements. It really illuminates them. So that's why I get into so much history here. Interpreting Antietam in the war from Ellen White's August 1861 forecast, God had ordained, we could say that God had ordained the much-needed victory at Antietam. His time, its timing, that is the Battle of Antietam, was delicate and precise, a moment in the war when so much hung in the balance. If the Union had lost this momentous battle, 
England would have intervened and given the Confederacy diplomatic recognition. The Union cause would have been defeated in the November elections. And more importantly, the character of the war and the future of slavery in the South would have remained unchanged without Lincoln's preliminary Emancipation Proclamation. So clearly, this is where I would interpret God was involved in this battle. It was a, one of the first major turning points in the war. But God in His wisdom, to apply White's words here, saw fit to give this victory to the Union in September 1862. It was the beginning of the end, a long and bloody end. So, we find this pattern in 1862. A series of victories ended by a series of defeats, major defeats in the summer, and then things went back uphill with Antietam. But remember, this involved punishment. The war wasn't going to be over soon. Antietam was a turning point, but the next major battle was a disaster for the Union. The Battle of Fredericksburg. Fredericksburg, Maryland at Marie Heights. This was another general. After letting McClellan go, he put in his place General Burnside. Now Burnside, interestingly, grew his whiskers down his side and kept his chin bald. And that became kind of a, a, a known feature of this general. And later his name Burnside was inverted to Sideburn. And that's how we got the name Sideburn today. It goes back to General Burnside. You have a lot of, of phrases that we use today that root in the Civil War. But Fredericksburg, Burnside foolishly took his, his massive 100,000 army and sent them up in waves on Marie Heights where you had all the Confederates embedded on high ground. And they just mowed them down. Wave after wave, all day long, in this winter December day. And, they, they, and the charging troops would run on top of the bodies of the others. And they get mowed down. Literally, these soldiers are mowed down. It was a horrific Union loss. It plunged the Union in despair. After this, Lincoln said, and I'm just going to use his language now, but Lincoln was so up, he said, if there is a worse place than hell, I'm in it. He said that to one of his aides, and that was, that was recorded. Uh, he, was, he was in despair. It just it plunged him into... They said there were times where Lincoln was so discouraged, and this is one of them. But then another battle took place in good old Tennessee, up north of us, right in the Nashville area, the Battle of Stones River. This was a marginal victory, almost a tie, but a barely Union win. But it was a very strategic win that Lincoln said saved the day. Because Lincoln had all kinds of forces battling him to end the war and leave slavery alone. And if he didn't have wins in the battlefield, he did not get the support he needed, see. So that's why it was so discouraging for him when you had these major losses. So you can see the pattern. Win, loss, win, loss, win. Up and down, just as that forecast had depicted. Now let's go to the pattern of the battles in 1863. The 1863 began with Lincoln on January 1, 1863, signing the final draft of the Emancipation Proclamation. And as I said, that began a trend that gradually changed the entire war effort. That's when they, Lincoln had already realized that no longer can they um, 
lightly go against the Confederacy. They must invade the Confederacy and absolutely destroy it and destroy Confederate armies. There's no other way to win the war. That meant massive loss of life, but also meant uh, destroying Confederate resources as well. And so by the time you get to 1863, things have changed and uh, the battles were more aggressive, more bloody. So in the spring, let me back up, and Lincoln had called for another day of fasting. This was different from the September fasting in 1861. He acknowledged sins, and he acknowledged that the nation had been wrong in its whole approach. It was a much more humility, as if he had slavery in his mind in this fast. And so the nation prayed. They expected God to act. The Battle of Chancellorville happened. It was a major Union loss. This was one of Lee's, Robert E. Lee's greatest victories. It was a brilliant strategy in winning this battle. But it was a massive Union defeat. And uh, they were very discouraged after this. Lincoln, they say, after this battle, walked up and down the, the, in the, the halls of the White House just with his face in his hands, almost weeping and, and wailing because of this loss. But it was also, while it was a win for the Confederacy, it was a bad day for Robert E. Lee. His right-hand general was wounded in this battle. Stonewall Jackson, remember? The greatest general of the Confederacy. He was doing reconnaissance one night and he received friendly fire from his own troops. Shot him in the shoulder and the side. He lost his arm. In the days ahead, he caught pneumonia from the infection, and he died. Lee said, I've lost my right arm. Or he, he, he said this about uh, uh, Jackson. He said, he may have lost his arm, but I've lost his left arm, but I've lost my right arm because he depended so much on Jackson. In fact, it's estimated by uh, some historians that if Jackson had been around with Lee, during the famous Pickett's Charge in the Battle of Gettysburg, it would have been different. Lee may have won Gettysburg if Jackson were with him. That's, of course, conjecture. It never happened, but that is an interesting... In my first draft of the book, I had all that because I apply that theologically to how God would even... He took Jackson out of the factor to change things, but I had to edit that out because it was too long. So then you had... Two great victories in the summer of 63. The most famous battle of the Civil War is the Battle of Gettysburg. That's the most well-known war, or excuse me, well-known battle of the entire Civil War, Gettysburg. And that is a battlefield. If you're going to visit one battlefield, you want to see Gettysburg. You've been there? Oh, it's, it's amazing. All the monuments and uh, all the famous stories of the battle took place. Yet, strategically, Gettysburg is not the most important battle. Vicksburg was because Vicksburg took the Mississippi. Finally, a year later, uh, through siege, Grant, in one of the most brilliant campaigns of the Civil War, took Vicksburg. And that put the Confederate, the, 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 almost the, that part of the Confederacy in the hands of the Union. Now the entire Mississippi, after they took another uh, city out along the Mississippi, what, once that was done, the entire Mississippi belonged to the Confederacy or excuse me, to the Union. Now they had cut the Confederacy in two. Now the Confederacy's days were numbered. So Gettysburg and Vicksburg were major 
wins for the union. So you see this, this, you have the down pattern, then this up pattern, but then it suddenly plunged the Battle of Chickamauga. We're back home again in Tennessee, right here in this area. The Battle of Chickamauga was a painful loss for the Union. Lots of interesting stories surrounding this. I touch on it in the book. I won't get into Chickamauga now. But it was a, a, an unfortunate defeat. But it was more painful defeat, not a strategic defeat. It didn't cause the Union to lose its momentum. But you could look at it as part of punishment. Because it, after Gettysburg had the most casualties of any battle in, in the Civil War, the next battle after that of casualties was Chickamauga. So it was a bloody, bloody war. Or battle. I keep saying war, I mean battle. These are battles, a part of the entire war. And then, of course, there is the battles of Chattanooga. These were victories. Let me linger on the battles of Chattanooga since that's home right now. There is Lookout Mountain, a, a painting of how it looked in that day. This is the, the Chattanooga Valley. Chattanooga was extremely important to the Union objectives of winning the war. Located in the southeastern Tennessee, close to North Georgia, with the Blue Ridge Mountains and Appalachian Plateau, the east to the east and the mountains of the Cumberland Plateau to the west, the city was a convergence of roads, major railroads, and the Tennessee River. It was a strategic location for the Confederacy. If the Union took Chattanooga, it could split the Confederacy in two once again after the Mississippi. So they had been trying to take Chattanooga since 62 and had been unsuccessful. But now things were about to change. It has been called the gateway to the Confederacy because of its major east-west railroads and its major railroads south to the important city of Atlanta. You know, the interstate we go to drive to Atlanta, that was a part of the highway back then to Atlanta. The symbol of the Confederacy. While Richmond was the capital of the Confederacy, Atlanta, it was the symbol of all of the Confederacy. It was vital to the Confederacy's ability to transport troops and supplies to its armies and thus the most important strategic point in the Confederacy that was our own Chattanooga. Union control of Chattanooga would split the Confederacy again and open the gate to strike at its heartland. Now here's the battle plan. Now let me show you how this relates to today. Here is Missionary Ridge. Here's Lookout Mountain. The interstate that we drive on comes right about here. And all of this, of course, is the Chattanooga Valley. All this is the city. And the interstate drives down through here, right along this edge of the mountain, goes along Lookout Mountain there through the river. Still similar. But what is cool to me is that this interstate drives through Civil War history, drives right through the strategic battle. Here was the plan. Grant took charge. This is when Grant rose to prominence at the Battle of Chattanooga. Chattanooga, the, after Chickamauga, the Union went back to Chattanooga and they were stuck there. And Bragg, the Confederate general, put his troops all on Missionary Ridge and held Chattanooga under siege. So the key was to free Chattanooga from this siege. And so Grant planned several movements. First of all, he would send Hooker with his division or his regiments to take Lookout Mountain, or at least to demonstrate on Lookout Mountain. Now that's General Hooker. He has a very interesting history. Talk about names that go back to the Civil War. I won't go into detail on this one, but just 
you might find this interesting. Um, Hooker was a womanizer, okay? And his name is still used today. I won't go any further, but let me just say this, that one of the concerns of the Adventists about the Civil War is the immorality among the soldiers. They look forward to the war ending because there was so much immorality among the, the Union soldiers. And so that was a great concern. You read about that in the review. And, of course, Hooker was well known for his immoral acts, and that's where the name Hooker originates, okay? Anyway, not too much detail about that one. And if you're, you're not clear where I'm going, where I went with that, I'll talk to you afterward. Um, so, on, uh, in November... November 24, Hooker took Lookout Mountain. But the plan was is to draw the attention of the Confederates here to Lookout Mountain. And while you had Hooker on Lookout Mountain, Sherman was taking his division to hit the Confederates from on their right flank. So you had Hooker on the left and Sherman on the right. And he was to hit them on the top of the ridge and roll them back. And Grant had several divisions under General Thomas at the bottom of Missionary Ridge, and they were to send fire up and demonstrate. And he said, maybe if the opportunity is right, then you charge the hill. But again, that would not be a good idea because the Confederates had high ground here. And we've already seen from Fredericksburg and Gettysburg, the famous Pickett's Charge, when you charge an army that has high ground, you're in trouble in the, in the Civil War. You, you would lose. But that didn't happen in this case. So what happened, Hooker actually, instead of just demonstrating, he took Lookout Mountain and ran the Confederates off. And then he was to go and flank them on their left on Missionary Ridge. Sherman got stalled here, and this plan was foiled. And so Grant realized something needs to be done. And somehow the word got out that these divisions here were to charge up Missionary Ridge, or at least take, see these lines here? Those are the rifle pits. At least take the rifle pits. But while they were doing that, on high ground, they were receiving intense fire from all these Confederates embedded on the top. Now Sheridan's division ran up right about here as the interstate comes down. And Sheridan is one of my favorite generals in the Civil War because he was 5 feet 5 inches, the shortest general. That's my height. So he's my man. And he helped win the war at the end take Lee at one of the last battles of Appomattox. Um, so I like Sheridan. But for me, when I'm driving down the interstate right here, it's very dangerous for me because I'm driving and I'm thinking about the history. I'm looking at the ridge and I'm thinking of Sheridan down over there and I'm not watching the road. So I have to be careful when I'm driving down the interstate because I, I think about this history. I was driving with my mother. I had to take her to Huntsville just this last week to run some errands for her. And... Uh, we were driving back, and there was Missionary Ridge. And I was telling her the story. Look, Mom, I want to tell you what happened here. So it's very exciting. We get to drive right through living history here in Chattanooga. So think about that the next time you're on the interstate, you're going into the Chattanooga Valley. You're coming back up, uh, coming to Southern from that way, from Lookout Mountain. You'll see Lookout Mountain, and then you'll see Missionary Ridge. You can't miss it. And that's where this history took place. And one of the most dramatic events in all the Civil War took place right there. So here's what happened. Because Sherman couldn't uh, flank them right here and Hooker was having trouble here, 
these guys eventually, somehow they're not sure whether it was a command by the generals, they let loose and they charged up Missionary Ridge. They took the rifle pits and in the midst of fire raining down on them, they continued to charge up that hill. Here is a picture, uh, let me back up to the, to the battle on the top of Lookout Mountain. They say it's the battle above the clouds. Actually, it was the battle in the clouds because that day it was, Lookout Mountain was covered with a fog. And some of the soldiers say it was a battle in the clouds. Here's a picture of some of the uh, skirmishing that took place on the mountain. Not a picture, but a uh, drawing of, of what took place. And uh, that was, the, look at all the troops. This is what is downtown city today. But there were a lot of open fields with thousands of Union troops waiting to see what would happen uh, as their troops were on the battle of, uh, on, in battle on Lookout Mountain. That battle ended. It was cold. The next morning, the 25th, took place. And that's when Sherman was supposed to, to charge here and, t and roll these... Confederates off the hill, but that didn't take place. So then you had the charge up Missionary Ridge. Grant's headquarters was, was at a place called Orchard's Knob. It's a, it's a huge hill right there in the Chattanooga Valley. And now it's a, uh, it's a monument. And it's, it's a part of the state park. It's one of my favorite places to visit. They have all the monuments of the, the regim regiments that were there. And that was uh, Grant's command point at Orchard's Knob. Check it out. You get on top of it, you have a panoramic view of the entire Chattanooga Valley. It's simply gorgeous on a clear day. Only problem is you've got to be careful because it's surrounded by crack houses. So if you go, go in the early part of the day. Don't wait till sunset. You don't want to be around crack houses at sunset, okay? At least that's what I've been told. I've never experimented. I go in the middle of the day when I'm there, but it's a... Uh, that's where it took place. And here's what it looks like today. There are trees there that weren't there, but that's Missionary Ridge. This is, that's the picture I took right there from Orchard's Knob. Uh, I actually have a video of it, but I don't think I'll take time to do that. Here is how Missionary Ridge looked after the battle. Uh, this picture was taken after the battle. So it was open space like this. Uh, a few trees on the ridge. Of course, now all this is houses and and houses are on top of Missionary Ridge now. All this is city, but this is how it looked within months after that battle in 1863. About 3.40 p.m., approximately 23,000 men in four divisions surged forward over the cleared plain and up to the heights where a line of approximately 9,000 Confederates nervously waited. Here's a picture of what it was like back then, not a, a drawing, I should say the Battle of Missionary Ridge on November 25th, and they, these troops miraculously charged up this hill in the midst of fire, and very few of them died. And when they got to the top, it was point-blank shooting, and they drove the Confederates off. They took Missionary Ridge, and the Confederates retreated. It was a remarkable victory. That's why it's called the Miracle on Missionary Ridge. And Chattanooga now was officially in Union hands and the days of the Confederacy were numbered because the victory at Chattanooga was a, another major turning point in the Civil War. So right here in our very own backyard at Chattanooga, one of the most remarkable battles of the Civil War took place 
and one of the most remarkable charges in the Civil War. Well, Chattanooga propelled these three generals into prominence for the rest of the war. You have Ulysses L. Grant, Sherman, and Sheridan. That's the my Sheridan, okay, that I, I, I like. But all three of these guys are my favorite. I do like Robert E. Lee and Thomas Jackson, too. Uh, the biographies of those guys are just fascinating, and I respect them, although I cannot find myself agreeing in anything with the Confederate. Even though I'm an Alabama boy, I have no sympathy for the Confederacy. Um, but I do like Lee and Jackson and several other Confederates as generals, but these guys are the heroes right here. Finally, Lincoln had the general he needed. He made Grant general-in-chief of the Northern Armies in the spring of 1864 and expected Grant to bring the war to an end in the summer of 64. Grant launched his famous Overland Campaign, a series of battles between he and Lee in order to take Richmond, but it was not as easy as they thought. Again, notice the pattern of the battles in 1864. Everybody was in high spirits at the end of 63 because of Chattanooga, and they thought, man, this is going to be over soon, but the bloodiest battles of the Civil War took place that summer in 1864. The Battle of the Wilderness was a horrific battle, fought in thick brush, firing. It took place over several days after the second day because of so much musketry fire, it caught the woods on fire. And wounded were all through the woods. Still alive, they weren't able to get to them. And the soldiers in the lines waiting to fight the next day that night they grimaced as they listened to their comrades scream as they were burned in the fires. Because the wounded, they couldn't move, but they were alive, and they were burned to death in the fire. Burned alive, I should say, in the fires. And, they, they, the, and the soldiers in the lines, both Confederate and Union, heard the screams of their comrades, and they couldn't go to rescue them. That's one of the horrors of the Civil War. That was at the wilderness. Thousands of casualties. Spotsylvania. Another maneuver, flanking maneuver between Lee and Grant as, as Grant was trying to move closer towards Richmond in the summer of 64. Terrible, terrible battle. Uh, Spotsylvania is a, is a particular point where soldiers would die and another line would come in and they would fight on top of the other soldiers. It rained that day and they pushed them into the mud. Some soldiers were buried alive in the mud at Spotsylvania. It was, it's considered one of the most bloodiest points of battle in the Civil War. Coal Harbor. This is another major charge. Grant mistakenly launched a major charge on the Confederates who were embedded in the trenches around Cold Harbor. And within the first 10 minutes of that charge, 4,000 Union men dropped to, their, to the ground and died. They were just mowed down and shot. And there were some hand, some uh, of the, the lines met the Confederates and there was hand-to-hand -hand combat. But within, within minutes, thousands died. Uh, many more thousands died. I should say more, uh, several more thousand died. By the end of the day, there was about 7,000 that had died um, in the charge. Grant looked back on Cold Harbor. He wrote in his memoirs and he said of all the charges he made in the Civil War, he regrets this one the most. He said all the loss of life was purposeless. It didn't accomplish anything. He said he regrets that charge greatly. A draw, a draw, defeat. And then finally, Petersburg was, was the city right before Richmond. To take Richmond, the capital of the Confederacy, you have to take P 
Petersburg. But Grant went to take Petersburg and Lee had his troops embedded there and he couldn't take it so he laid siege to it. Several battles took place, he couldn't penetrate it so he laid siege to it and he was stuck there for the rest of the summer in a siege. So again you can see this pattern. This is a pattern of defeat and uh, at the same time while Grant was battling in the east you had Sherman leaving Chattanooga and going to Atlanta and it was a long battle a long series of battles to Atlanta. The Kennesaw Mountain uh, fought on June 27 was a major defeat for Sherman's troops. The Battle of the Crater, that was also around Petersburg. And uh, I skip it in this presentation, but in the book I chronicle in detail Sherman's movement towards Atlanta. You see this up and down pattern of wins. And he, he lost, but he finally got, yet he made momentum and got to Atlanta. Then he had some wins, but eventually... He was stuck outside of Atlanta and laid siege to it. So you had, you had a stalemate at the end of the summer. Grant in a siege at Petersburg and Sherman in a siege around Atlanta. Two major cities. And they couldn't penetrate them. And that summer, the morale of the Union plunged to its lowest point. And Lincoln desperately needed battles to gain momentum. It was, he was up for re-election. And he knew if he did not get some battles, victories in the battlefield, he would not be reelected. And guess who his running mate was? Guess who the Democratic nominee was against Lincoln? George McClellan. The general who Lincoln had fired earlier came back to haunt him as a Democratic nominee. Now Lincoln, I haven't, or, or McClellan rather, I haven't said a lot about this, but McClellan... He was a general who wanted to bring the Union back together through the war, but he wanted to leave slavery alone in the South. He was somewhat pro-slavery, we could say. And now he was against Lincoln. And Lincoln felt with this stalemate in the summer, Americans are upset, they wanted victories, he's going to lose. And it was very possible that he would lose in that coming election in the fall against McClellan. Now, if McClellan had won and Lincoln had lost, if McClellan had become the next president, he would have reversed everything Lincoln had accomplished in terms of emancipation. He would have changed the war. He would have sat down at the negotiating table with the Confederates and figured out a way to end the war and allow them to keep slavery. I mean, the thought of McClellan winning makes anyone who's knowledgeable of that put their heads in their hands and shake, shake their head and say, it would have been a disaster if McClellan had got the presidency. But I want you to notice what happened here. At the right point, Sherman made a, a, a charge on cutting off the supply to Atlanta and the Confederate general brought his troops out and Sherman defeated them. And he went into Atlanta and took Atlanta. Atlanta, the battle of Atlanta, or the, I should say the battle that in which Sherman took Atlanta, that was one of the most strategic battles of the entire Civil War. Once Atlanta was in Union hands, that changed everything. That was the victory that Lincoln needed. Now, everybody was excited. In fact, women wept, men threw their hats off and cheered in the, in the North at 
Sherman's battle or Sherman's victory of Atlanta. That changed everything. So that downward pattern went suddenly up. Without question, I believe God's hand was in the victory of Atlanta. It was strategic at the moment when the Union needed it the most. And as a result of that, Lincoln won the presidency. He was able to continue with his policy of ending the war with slavery ended. Sherman went on to march, his famous march to the sea, where he destroyed uh, the Georgia, cut it in half, cut the Confederacy in half once again, cut off its resources. That was the victory. Then you have the victory of Nashville, a number of other victories that I discussed in the book. I'm just summarizing here. You'll notice once the Union had decided to end slavery because that fall is when Lincoln began lobbying for the, an amendment to end slavery, to change the Constitution to end slavery. And that, of course, resulted in the 13th Amendment. And the movie Lincoln, I said, is all about what happened that fall and in that early winter when the 13th Amendment was passed. And once that took place, it was clear in re-electing Lincoln that the North had decided it was against slavery. And that's when the momentum changed. That's when they had one victory after another. After Atlanta, it was, an, it was a downhill after that. So you have Sherman's march in January, the battles of 65, victory, victory. Finally, Grant broke through Vicksburg. You had the fall of Richmond. And then you have the conclusion of the battle of Appomattox Court where Lee went in and in uh, one of the homes there and surrendered to Grant, surrendered the principal Confederate army. There were a few skirmishes after that. Uh, Jefferson Davis was caught and put in jail, and there was a final battle in Texas, and that officially ended the war. But really at Appomattox, when the principal Confederate army surrendered to the Union, the war was essentially over at that point. So it was a major victory. Then it was explained that God, back on this forecast, then it was explained that God had this nation in His own hand and would not suffer victories to be gained faster than He ordained and would permit no more losses to the northern men than in His wisdom He saw fit to punish them for their sins. So we've just traced this up and down pattern, this seesaw pattern throughout the entire war. At once the, the Union war effort became a war to end slavery. The momentum was in their favor and God gave them ultimate victory. Just as White had said, God has had this nation in His own hand. God has this nation in His own hand today, as I've already alluded with what's happening in our world today from terrorism to our present uh, presidential election. It's good to know that God still has this nation in His hands. And if that is true, if God has this nation in His own hand, then it is reasonable to believe that He has your life and my life in His own hand. And that is good news. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.